Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey folks, today's episode is made possible by Help Existing, the new podcast from author and award-winning journalist Rachel Krantz. On Help Existing, you will hear Rachel interview a different guest each week to get practical help on a specific aspect of existing. This is a show where highbrow and lowbrow topics happily coexist. You might hear a conversation about how to confront your fear of death one week. And then the next week, you might hear about how to have your first conversation with a partner about kink or whether to have children. Full disclosure, I was on the show recently to talk about how to be a good listener, so you might want to check that out. On the Help Existing podcast, no topic is too taboo or sticky, but all episodes aim to be practically and emotionally helpful for listeners. That's Help Existing, the new podcast from Rachel Krantz. Go check it out. Available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Other People podcast. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have an excellent program for you today. My guest is Ernan Diaz, author of the novel Trust. We shouldn't be too quick to dismiss fiction from the realm of truth. The novel is inviting the reader to reconsider this, this hierarchy where history is supposed to provide us with the truth and fiction is just a mere innocuous pastime. Okay, that was Ernan Diaz. His new novel, once again, is called Trust, available now from Riverhead. The conversation with Ernan Diaz will be happening momentarily. Today's episode is brought to you by Ig, publisher of my new novel, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is available now in trade paperback and ebook editions. You can also find it in an audiobook edition from Tantor Media and Highbridge Audio. 
The audiobook is narrated by yours truly. Be Brief and Tell Them Everything explores the themes of creation, creative exasperation, grief, loss, fatherhood, marriage, fate, failure, psychedelic reckoning, and more. It is a book that over time became about its own making. It's a personal story and hopefully a darkly funny one. Once again, the novel is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now from IG. On a related note, I should let you know that I will be reading at Stories in Echo Park on June 5th here in Los Angeles. That starts at 5 p.m. I will be part of an autofiction reading series hosted by Caitlin Forst. Other readers include Kara Blue Adams, Alexandra Jade, Oliver Zarandi, and others. So if you're in Los Angeles and you want to come out, please join us on June 5th at 5 p.m. at Stories in Echo Park. This episode is also made possible by Tenants Cove Writers Retreat. If you are a writer and you want to get some work done, if you're serious about getting work done on your manuscript, Tenants Cove Writers is a new retreat and workshop that offers rustic and rural glamping, as well as a warm and inspiring creative community. It is happening this summer on a nature preserve of 150 acres in New Brunswick, Canada, from August 7th through the 14th. The retreat will be hosted and moderated by Melissa Scholes-Young, author of the novel Hive, and Peter Von Zagazar, author of the memoir The Looking Glass Brother. On-site tuition plus room and board is $2,500, and there are only four spots available. This is a small, intimate, limited opportunity retreat. Participants can also arrange a full manuscript review for an additional fee. At Tenants Cove Writers, they're looking for serious writers who seriously want to go into retreat and make some big progress on their writing. For more information, visit tenantscovewriters.com. That's T-E-N-N-A-N-T-S, covewriters.com, and join the retreat this summer. One more time, the website is tenantscovewriters.com. Okay, so today on the program, my guest is Ernan Diaz. His new novel is called Trust, available now from Riverhead. Trust is Ernan Diaz's second novel, the much-anticipated follow-up to his first novel, In the Distance, which was published by Coffeehouse Press to great acclaim in 2017. In the Distance is, by any measure, a remarkable success story in publishing. The manuscript was submitted to Coffeehouse by Ernan Diaz himself, He was unagented at the time. He did not have a literary agent. And the book was picked up off the slush pile. And the rest is history. In the Distance was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Pulitzer Prize. And it won the Soroyan International Prize and the New American Voices Award, among other distinctions. Ernan Diaz is the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, uh, a Whiting Writers Award, Among other things, he holds a Ph.D. from NYU, and he is also the author of a book on Jorge Luis Borges called Borges Between History and Eternity. So one of the more exciting writers out there today, and I had a great time meeting Ernan Diaz and talking with him about his excellent new book. Trust is an incredibly intelligent, unexpectedly moving, intricately structured and plotted novel 
about, among other things, capital and how large amounts of capital are amassed in this world and in particular in the United States of America. It covers a lot of ground and it speaks across the ages. It's a wonderful book and I'm so pleased to get to share this conversation with you guys right now. So here he is folks, this is Ernan Diaz and his new novel, One More Time, is called Trust. I'm in Brooklyn. I just came back from a long tour, and it's very nice to be back home. I live in Brooklyn Heights. I'm at home right now. I have my library behind me, and I happen, just by coincidence, to be sitting in front of the shelf full of uh, research uh, of books that I that I read for Trust. Okay, so yeah, you did a lot of research for this book, and I think this was one of the first questions that I had for you, because your literary project so far within the distance and now trust has a lot to do with uh, american ideals and american narratives a lot of them self-generated and perpetuated by people in power uh you know this country like any country has certain myths that it tends to want to associate itself with and you're interested in this you're interested in america's ideas about itself as somebody who is as i think you've put it a voluntary American. You're not from <laughs> you're not from the United States originally. You're you're from Buenos Aires, and then were raised in Sweden, and spent time in London, and then now you're in Brooklyn. So you're coming at it with the perspective of an outsider uh, a bit, or somebody who's got kind of some some critical distance from it. And with trust, you're exploring wealth, and in particular the accumulation of capital, the machinery. Uh, involved in the accumulation of capital, that that very act, you know, which is kind of mysterious to so many of us. And so uh, the question that I have for you is, if you're interested in exploring these narratives, and in particular the narratives in trust, did anything that you discovered in the research process or in the writing process challenge or upend preconceived notions that you might have had? Did you learn anything new or unexpected in the process of doing this book? That's a beautiful question. And I've learned a few things that were unexpected. The first thing, which I've talked about elsewhere, but it it bears repeating, I think, is that even though capital has this mystical place in the American imagination, it's it's very hard to imagine ourselves as a people and uh, really to define the American dream (laughs) without making a reference to capital and money and wealth. So although money does occupy this transcendental place in our history and in our consciousness, the discovery that I made once I dove into this somewhat seriously was that this obsession hasn't been reflected in literature that much. There are many novels about class, there are many novels about manners, there are many novels about exploitation, and I'm sure both you and the listeners are running sort of little lists in, in, in their minds about, about all these categories. But I think we're all hard pressed to find novels that are about money itself. This was quite a discovery to me, this dissonance, this disproportion between, on the one hand, the outsized role that that wealth and the accumulation of wealth play 
in American history, and on the other side, how almost priggish the American canon has been when it comes to dealing with money. That that's one thing that I, I expected to find a, a trove of, of of novels around this topic, and there aren't that many of them, uh, at least to my mind, or that do it or that address this issue in in ways that to me are productive. The second thing that I discovered, I don't know if it upended anything, as you as you said in your question, but it was it was an intense discovery. Is that the novel is set for the most part around the years of the 1929 crash? It goes all the way up to 1985, and it starts actually in the Gilded Age in the late 1880s. But the main action is sort of the 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 boom during the 20s and the and the depression that followed the 1929 stock market crash. And a fascinating thing that I discovered is that serious economists, the most serious ones, can't really explain why this happened, why the crash happened. It's It remains, there are many theories, uh, some of them involve, you know, uh, monetary policy, uh, the relatively new Federal Reserve and how it intervened into the situation, speculation on debt, and so on and so forth. But the truth is nobody knows what happened and how it can be explained away. And the more I looked into the financial history of the United States, it's very clear that crashes of this kind are baked into the system to a large extent. They're very cyclical. They they occur. Of course, the, the most recent one is the 2008 one, and, and now we're going through through this big slump, and, and we'll see where it leads. But it was remarkable to see the extent to which these sharp breaks and financial earthquakes are part of the system. One would think that if we if we believe in the invisible hand of the market, as, as Adam Smith said, that things would correct themselves before reaching that breaking point, but they but they don't. Over and over again, they fail to do so. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. 
Priceline. And your book is about a speculative investor who you've kind of created a mythical figure who is able to intuit and anticipate the fluctuations of the market that you just described with uncanny accuracy, kind of a math, yes. like a math genius, the way that we tend to exalt the, the super rich. I'm thinking of a guy like Warren Buffett as sort of like, there's a mystical air about him because of his success as an investor. There are other examples, but can you talk a little bit about the, the character that you created at the center of this novel, or I guess the characters that you created and, <laughs> and how you built them? Yes, I, I, I appreciate your ambiguity in the question, the character or characters, and perhaps some listeners have not read the book. So a, a, the briefest sort of synopsis may be in order. The, the book opens up with uh, a novel within the novel. It's a whole novel whose character is called Benjamin uh, Rask, and he is most likely the richest man in the world. That's the kind of privilege that, that, I, that I wanted to explore in this in this novel. And he has all these qualities that you just described. He's sort of a wizard of the, of the market and can almost foresee the, the future. He's prescient. So this, this whole novel within the novel comes to a conclusion. And the second section of my book is an unfinished autobiography by, uh, in air quotes, real life tycoon. And we very soon discover that this is the real person on whom that first novel within the novel was based. And the real tycoon is not happy with the way he's been depicted in, in the book. So he sets out to, to write this autobiography to set the record straight. This is, this is the plan. So hence uh, your ambiguity, Brad, sort of this character or characters. It's a, it's a, it's a man with two different incarnations and to sort of shape him, it was complicated because there's much about him that is very sort of unlikable or 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 that I don't like, but I also wanted to endow him with a deep sense of humanity. I don't want to create sort of a, a cigar chomping, you know, caricature of a millionaire in the 20s and then proceed to beat him up like a piñata. That, that would have been just too facile, too simple. I tried to endow him with, with humanity, with feelings, and, and we see this mostly in his relationship with his wife. But to get a sense of who he was, I relied heavily on, on historical documents and and autobiographies by great men, you know, in in quotes again, and try to find their tone and their unshakable self-assurance. You know, the, these are all men who believe on the page that, that their lives have been blameless and that we all really need to hear their tale and learn from their outsized achievements. So he's a complicated figure. He's a very complicated figure. And uh, the novelist sort of ex explores this, this, this complication. But he's outsized in the sense that he also embodies within his own self this chimera of, of American capital. You know, it's interesting. We talked a bit of, just a bit ago about how this book sort of centers itself on capital and the accumulation of capital and how you found in your research that there was a dearth of this in the American canon, you know, this particular kind of story, uh, you know, there's class novels and there's novels of manners and novels of exploitation, but in terms of the machinery of how capital really works, there wasn't much. And I wonder if it's because 
it's hard to understand. <laughs> I think of I think of writers and their temperament in general. I mean, writers are not notorious for being great with money. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you, I'm, I, I belong in that legion of uh, people who are not great with money, sadly. But uh, <laughs> I read a, a, a ton. It was a steep learning curve to to write this book, and in the process, I learned there is a. Um, a Nobel laureate in economics, an American, his name is Paul Romer. He used to be the chief economist uh, for the World Bank and uh, a very, very impressive intellectual in the, in the field. And he coined this term mathiness, which, which means, of course, there is mathematical sophistication to economics. Nobody in the right mind would, would deny this obvious fact. But it is equally true that so many matters in economic policy really depend on consensus and are, and are a matter of ideological opinion and implementation of different policies. So what some economists will do is to shroud these more political aspects of finance in mathiness, in sort of a, a false sense of objectivity to disguise the fact that these are indeed ideological matters that should be discussed in the public arena but if you present them as something mathematical objective and irrefutable you are dispensed with this discussion and this is something i found repeatedly in in my research that things were made to be more arcane than perhaps they ought to have been or than they really are and i think the the ultimate desired effect is to turn the public off and away from these matters. You know, it's just, oh, we can't be bothered. Let's leave this to to the specialists. I fear this is becoming like super like nerdy and wonky and... and no, <laughs> I think it's important. On economics. We can switch gears and talk about literature and books any <laughs> you want. I think that this curiosity is at the heart of the character and at the heart of yes. the book in some ways. And I think it's important to address it be precisely because it often does not go addressed. Yeah. And, you know, you said something, I'm going to read a quote back to you just because I felt it was very eloquent. And you said something in an interview that you did about money and about this, you know, the way that a lot of times the politics of money get shrouded and the mathiness of it as a way of obfuscating. And you said the self, I think you said the self-conscious mystification of money is meant to shut out to shut us out of its workings and impart an element of magic to it, magic that only magicians yeah. can perform. They are a special class of oppressors whose amoral monkishness we admire. Sometimes we might even look to them as saviors. And I, I, I read that or I think of that and I think of the way that, just as an ex like an, you know, a popular example, I think of the way that tech CEOs often yeah. present themselves with these monkish beards in their austere hoodies <laughs> you know that's they, they, so cool oh yeah like cowls yeah, yeah they have they have this sort of you know they're they're like resolutely underdressed and yeah i hadn't given that much thought i thought oh they're just young and they're in their their flip-flops or whatever in the office but it's a way of obfuscating you know how how harmful could a guy like mark yeah. mark zuckerberg be he's just wearing a hoodie and sandals and yeah there's a method to that madness, I think, that you're yeah. describing, and it appllies through the generations. What is that interview you quoted? Where is you, I think that was I think that was Harper's. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, uh, you're uh, like, wow, I sound great. <laughs> like, uh, exactly. It's like, <laughs> I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Editor. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think Harper's was an interview, that, but I'm, I'm going to look this up because it, now I'm curious. We've been doing this for a really, really long time. This is this is just now the sort of the, the latest incarnation of this figure. And it's probably because, you know, certain centers of gravity have shifted to the West Coast to that. And that's a relatively new thing, relatively new thing. And with that also comes this this sort of a more enlightened and, and sort of crunchy version of the same idea, you know, but I, I think you're I think you're totally right at the at the core of it. I think the unspoken word here is guru, you know, these these are all gurus in one way or or another. And one of the funny things that I discovered during my research is how coherent certain economic policies have been in the United States over the course of a century. I was looking at the 1920s and I was writing this almost in the 2020s, right? And and the playbook during the Republican administrations at that time, mostly Harding and Coolidge and the Republican administration or, or, or policymakers of today are very much the same. American exceptionalism, you know, America first, tax cuts, radical tax cuts, especially for the wealthy, small government, big business, uh, no regulation of markets at all, tariffs whenever it's convenient for the United States. It was the whole shebang. It was an, an exact mirror. They stick to their narrative, even if the facts point elsewhere. And th this is exactly sort of the articulation that my book is trying to explore. You know, the difference between facts and narratives and how certain power structures to perpetuate themselves are reliant on narratives. And this is of great interest to me because so much since we're talking about the fiscal conservative agenda, so much of it is so profoundly rational and has been disproven by economic theory abundantly, you know, that the only way it can stay in place is by being propped up by different narratives that have to do, let's say, with with freedom, with self-determination, you know, with a competitive edge, with, you know, America number one, and uh, and all of that, all of those are are fictions and narratives. So, I think I think the 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 book, to a large extent, wants to highlight the fact that yes, sure, literature and the arts in general are conditioned by uh, by material circumstances and and by historical and economic forces, but the reverse is also true. There is no possibility of a financial or a political power perpetuating itself uh, without the aid of a certain constellation of fictions right. that, that legitimize it. So it reminds me of the conversation that Ida Partenza in the third section of your of your novel has with her like father who's kind of a radical uh, leftist from Italy. If I'm if I'm characterizing that properly, where he's kind of pointing at the skyline of Manhattan and talking about speculative financial transactions and how Wall Street was built, and he's like, "It's all fictions." Yeah, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, kind of of a similar line. Absolutely, there are two things I want to say about what you just said. The first thing is that he's he's an anarchist, and I I feel this is important 
here's another thing that I found during my research, and I put it in the book, so uh, it's it's in there. Obviously, the Italian presence in the United States at the turn of the century was was enormous. It was the largest migratory movement on you know in history at that point. My great grandfather and, and great grandmother were part of it. <laughs> oh, really? From Sicily, yeah. Listia Sicilian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm half Italian. I, I even have an Italian passport. Uh, and my maternal grandparents went from Campania to Buenos Aires, but they could just have easily have gone to New York or, uh, you know, I, I don't know why exactly they decided to go to Argentina, but they did. But uh, all this to say that, you know, the, the novel is very concerned with, with that world as well, because it was a world of, of immense uh, p- poverty, discrimination and segregation, you know, just across the East River. And on the other side, you have the, all this this incredible opulence and excess. Uh, and within the, the world of Italian immigrants, uh, uh, the anarchist movement played an outsized role. And I, it was fascinating to me to see the extent to which their legacy or their presence even has been deleted and ignored and vanished to a large extent. I, you know, I, I consulted very serious archives in the, in, the, in the process of writing this book. And I, I was unable to find a, a single whole collection of an Italian American anarchist paper or magazine anywhere. I'm sure it exists someplace. I, it was not readily available at any major institution. So that to me is, says something also about how we as a nation have handled a very important part of our past and, and decided that, uh, you know, it was it was it it ought to be deleted or it ought to be neglected to the point that it would become irretrievable. But speaking to that scene that you were mentioning, uh, the, this anarchist man who is a typesetter and actually prints uh, one of these anarchist newspapers, is walking down sort of the, the, the East River around Red Hook with, with his daughter, Ida Pertenso, who's the narrator and protagonist of this third section of the book. And he does indeed say that the skyline of, you know, downtown Manhattan is a mirage. (laughs) It's a fiction uh, because money at its core is a fiction, he says. And I I have to say, I agree with him (laughs) on this count because, you know, there is nothing in a $5 bill that inherently endows it with that purchasing power or bestows it with that purchasing power. Uh, it's just a convention, and it works. It it does have that purchasing power because of our trust in the the series of conventions that we have come to accept. But if you if you take a step back, all money is really monopoly money. All of it. Uh, it's just that you know we we have somehow agreed to 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 play the game, and 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 we have agreed that these slips of paper have a have a real impact on the on the world, but obviously they they don't. So this is the kind of conventions that I that I was interested in exploring. Money is the most visible, I think, social convention that that we have. We may have enormous differences uh, in every other regard, but we all agree that a five dollar bill is worth five dollars. Right. It's fun. Uh, it's fundamentally yeah. strange money, and this is something that your book really draws into relief and makes you think about when you're reading it. It's just how odd it yeah. is. You know, you 
have said, I think, that, that the core of this project is an attempt to listen to the humanity that wealth has tried to erase. So you, you talk about like the Italian anarchists, you know, who- Yeah, that's a good who, example. Yeah, whose voices. But th you also make a very interesting observation of the world of super high capital and how historically anyway, it has been almost entirely womanless. It is an, you know, yeah. an, an exclusively male domain. And this book is seeking to explore that and maybe to rectify some of these, uh, these deletions and injustices. So I'd like to hear you talk. I mean, we haven't spoken yet about Helen Rask, who is the fictionalized version of Mildred Bevel. Uh, mm -hmm. So in the, in the first section of the book, you've basically written an entire novel uh, about Benjamin and Helen Rask, who are fictional stand-ins for Andrew and Mildred Bevel, uh, who are, you know, in the world of your novel, the actual people, the actual married couple who That's right. accumulated all this capital. So can you just talk a little bit about wealth and erasure and, you know, how this became kind of a driving interest of the novel? Uh, there is there is a scene in the novel where the the tycoon asks his secretary. He says, "Do you, do you understand what my job is?" And she says, "No." And he says, "Well, thank you for not even attempting a response." He's having a bad day. He's very he's very snippy, and uh, and he says, "My job is to always be right, and whenever I'm wrong, I need to make use of." all the resources at my disposal to bend and align reality so that my mistake ceases to be a mistake. And uh, this, this is, I think, you know, I don't, I don't want to summarize the novel to, to one sentence because then why write the whole book? But I, but this was, this was a thing that I was thinking about a lot as I was, as I was writing uh, the novel, which is, in sufficient amounts, in vast amounts, money starts behaving almost like a black hole. It, it acquires a mass so large that it, you know, disrupts space-time almost. It really bends reality around it. I think, I think a silly, small little example is how we all... I kind of act weird around wealth. We stop being natural. I, I know this is true for me. I don't want to assign it to you, but uh, no, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I think I think yeah. most people do, especially if you're around somebody who's really got an absurd amount of money. Yes, you, you can detect it not only in yourself, but you detect it in everybody around them. It really right. just has a distorting effect. People behave differently, or when you enter a space that is. That is a space, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a temple to wealth, whatever this may be, you know, and it, it it affects you in ways that that you can't control and that I dislike very much, you know, and I, I, I hate it that I'm that I'm not immune to to this gravitational force. It it does do something to to my perception of the world and of myself. And this is a tiny example because. Who knows? You know, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I do firmly believe because I because I see it. I see it in the news that wealth in in sufficient amounts can do this bending, can do this aligning of reality, and this this distortion usually involves 
a double movement. First, the, the creation of narratives that self-aggrandize sort of the origin myth of this wealth, because we all know that all wealth is ill-gained at that level. There's just no way that money is legit. There just isn't. It's not possible. So it is necessary to to come up with, with a legitimizing kind of uh, uh, mythology. Uh, so that's that. That's the first operation. The second operation has to do with precisely deleting uh, the presence of all the the people who were effectively crushed in the making of this fortune. Like make a, a, a sort of a, a clean hygienic uh, narrative of of this wealth uh, that that excludes the you know the suffering and the silencing and the and the, and the deletion of all these other people and. What stood out for me was the radical, total absence of women in in these narratives. If you read the autobiographies of the great American tycoons, the, the, you know, women are not there or they're just, you know, wives for the most part. And in fiction, too, you know, they, they women are not involved in money making. That to me was sadly probably accurate on the one hand but also a, a sign of a crushing sense of exclusion, you know, that, that was real, that was real. This is something that I, that I wanted to revise and to subvert. So I do play with, uh, with the role of the wife, of the secretary, of the victim, which are the pre-assigned roles that women are pushed into in these narratives about wealth for the most part. And I try to subvert the the expectations that come with these with these worlds. As I was reading your book and thinking about how it is, kind of about a battle for control over a story. You know, that's a totally that's about it's like this this like it's like a war over narrative. I started yes. to think of of recent examples of American business tycoons or, or power players, and comments that they had made that had found their way into the press that stuck to me to a degree that's interesting because I remember them. I remember, for example, all the mythology around Steve Jobs and his infamous, uh, quote, reality distortion field. Like people who had worked with him would talk about how he had a reality distortion field. So if you gave him news or a narrative that he didn't like, he would basically, you know, just say, no, that that's not true. This is the truth. And then, really? was, yeah, yeah, the reality distortion field, uh, you know, with oh, Steve I never Jobs, heard that. right? Yeah, but it it squares very much with like the themes and the uh, activities of your novel. And then, it even exactly like exactly what I what I was trying to to express with a with a gravitational pull. It's the same, like the idea of an event horizon in a in a black hole. It's very sim Yeah, it's very similar. Well, and even more hauntingly, because I actually went and dug up this quote because I remembered it but couldn't paraphrase it for myself sufficiently. Was a quote that Karl Rove made during the George oh, yeah. W. Bush presidency, and I'm going to read it just because it's so perfect for I, a conversation. I was thinking. I think I know which quote you're going to read, and I was thinking about it during the writing, but please, let's, yeah. let's hear Karl Rove. Yeah, Karl Rove said, quote, We are an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And while you're studying that reality, judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too, and that's how things will sort out. We are history's actors, and you, all of you, will be left to just study what we do. Like if that yes, is not I, supreme arrogance and 
chilling. I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought about that Karl Rove quote a lot, and it feels weird to say that I thought about Karl Rove a lot. But <laughs> There's actually a photograph. People listening, you can't see this. There's actually a photograph of Karl Rove hanging in uh, in Ernan's uh, study. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, I did. I did. I did think about that quite often. I, I remember... I remember when he said that during sort of the the, the Bush administration, and uh, and I, it was it was utterly mind blowing, and it always stayed with me. I mean, I wasn't thinking of this project back then, of course, at all. It was, but it, but it was so, as you said, chilling, and the hubris of it all is just it's it's just uh, mind boggling. But I but I feel that then, like everything, like. Uh, then Trump came and everything seemed suddenly sort of almost benign, you know, in com- in comparison. And I'm not saying it was benign because I, I still feel that George W. Bush administrations were genocidal is the only word I can come up with for now. But most of Trust, my novel, was, was written during the Trump administration. And it seemed to me then, again, the parallels with the, with the 20s and you know, like Harding ran under the slogan America First. He also claimed to have the best people, you know, businessmen that he that he appointed to to his cabinet. Uh, then his successor, Calvin Coolidge, and his infamous 1924 Immigration Restriction Act. And we were seeing, you know, children being separated at the border. I, I should also say that the Immigration Quota Act was only for for certain specific regions, like mostly Italy and Asia, just like the bans during Trump were only for certain regions, right? And we remember how, what he called those countries too. So the, the parallels were uncanny, but also going back to the Karl Rove quote, the, the, the extent to which that administration made us doubt or wanted us to doubt empirical reality like things we were witnessing with our own eyes, not even through the media, you know, unfiltered, immediate reality was was being put in doubt, into doubt by that president and 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 his team, and it seemed to me that that reality itself was up for grabs. That to me was something I was thinking a lot about, and it's and it still is, you know, with. With all the, the 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 false claims about the fraudulent election uh, and 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 so on and so forth, I, I think that reality seems to be something that can't that can be bent and aligned, and and it is constantly, and it's a it's a terrifying notion, uh, and and of course, it's amplified by the the fact that th- there seems to be an increasing monopoly over media outlets that 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 makes this very complicated you know well it makes me think of i'm thinking of howard zinn sure you know the the story that you're telling here or one of the questions that the story is raising is who gets to decide how powerful people powerful men in particular are remembered right i and i and i think at the, at the core of the book is actually the interrogation of 
that boundary between history and fiction because history is is part of a constant negotiation it's not a, simply a matter of record part of it is of course but then another part has to do with the interpretation of those records and you know how visible part of those records are and to which extent other sections of those historical records are are thrown into into the shadows so it's not just a straightforward linear accumulation of facts along a timeline. That is not how history works. History is first and foremost a narrative. And a narrative is always highly ideological and and it implies uh, a certain contract with the reader. You know, we as readers of history are being asked each time we read a piece of history to take what we are being given uh, at face value and to accept that it is closer to factual truth than, say, any novel. So the, there is a hierarchy there between fiction and history, uh, where where history seems to have a greater claim to objectivity, whereas fiction is a mere make-believe. But our conversation right now is showing us that these distinctions are very unstable because on the one hand, you see that history resorts to a lot of even rhetorical devices that that we associate with literature to begin with. Not only that, history is not as objective as this is a truism. This is this is obvious to to or it should be obvious to 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 most of us. But it but it but it bears repeating that history doesn't doesn't get sort of this epistemological claim to offer up the truth about the past without any mediation. There are many mediations. On the other hand, I think fiction, if you look back at the, I can only speak about the literary, literary tradition of the West, but if you look back at, say, the last 2,500 years of Western literature, I think you will find there some sliver of truth about what it means to be a human on planet Earth. So we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss fiction from the realm of truth. I think fiction has been providing us throughout the course of millennia with very solid a very solid record about the human experience. And I, for one, turn to fiction for that way more than I do to history. So Again, this may be a long way to to say simply that the novel is inviting, I guess it's the polite word, is inviting the reader to reconsider this this hierarchy where history is supposed to provide us with the truth and and fiction is just a mere innocuous pastime. I think I think both of these, discourses owe a lot to one another and have informed each other throughout the course of time. And I think the ways in which one bleeds into the other are interesting and it's our duty to to look into that. I think I think maybe the truth that we're looking for is in those distortions, actually. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. What, what, what's coming to mind for me is the feminist quality of this book. I think it's fair to, to categorize it that way. It's a feminist novel in a lot of I ways. I hope so. And I feel that the 
depiction of the Helen Rask slash Mildred Bevel character is very deftly done. And I don't want to talk too much. I mean, she's so much to me the heart of the novel, but I don't want to talk too much about her because I don't want to give too much away. This is one of those novels that's difficult to talk about because, you know, you run the risk of, uh, you know, of spoiling. But a question that I will ask has to do with your research process as you were setting about to build the Mildred Bevel character and mm -hmm. what you discovered about the women of, you know, especially past eras in American life uh, in these higher echelons. You know, you talked about reading the autobiographies of great men and how these were pretty womanless tales. You know, they yeah. didn't have a lot of primary, uh, you know, importance in the way that these stories were depicted by the men themselves. But you did, I think, if I remember correctly, in your research process, read some diaries of women who sort of sat at the at the right hand or whatever of these these really wealthy men. Yeah, and I'm curious to know what you learned uh, about their lives and how that factored into the building of Mildred. Well, I, I that part of my work was sort of twofold. On the, on the one hand, I read a lot of journals, which are behind me next to the Carl Grove. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful oil painting. I don't know where you, you must have had that commissioned. <laughs> I, I did. Actually, it's George W. Bush. I was going to say, he did. Yes. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I know. Also, for the record, I don't have a Carl <laughs> picture behind me. He's in a bathtub, which is a little bit disturbing. <laughs> but that is a that is a motif that George W. Bush likes to work in. Is <laughs> what what's up with the bathtubs? Yes. Anyway, yeah. uh, so on the one hand, I I read a lot of beautiful, very moving journals from the period, which is a period in literature that I love. I I love high modernism. I I like the experimental nature of of that literature and i think it's a type of literature that is very invested in the exploration of selfhood and it's an inward looking kind of literature and that interior gaze also implies you know a new way of writing there's there's a new syntax there's a new pace there's a new texture and i'm i'm fascinated with this with this period just as i'm fascinated with the literature that precedes it like uh, the literature of henry james or constance fenimore wilson or or edith wharton sort of turn of the century american literature that i love so i read this on the one hand uh, and on the other hand i did archival research and went to private collections of some of these tycoons for the most part in in new york and asked to look at their wife's papers and uh what i found for the most part was a great sense of oppression and i'm not maybe i'm sort of uh imposing this on the papers and it's something that i felt but wasn't there i'm i'm just saying what my encounter was like there were many lists there were many blank days there was a sense of suffocation to me but but the 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 most chilling thing that i found was that none of these papers had been opened since they had been archived so for the most part, nobody had looked at these women's personal papers in like a hundred years. And that to me was the most 
eloquent silence that I found in 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 the whole writing process, uh, I would say, is the fact that still to this day, not only had these women been sort of marginalized and pushed into these sort of very menial roles, but but also to this day, people don't seem to care about what they had to say, you know. And uh, I think there's probably a number of ways in which these collections could be activated and, and turned into something interesting. And maybe they have, for all I know. I, I, I don't know. I haven't looked at sort of the all the all the exhibits of these libraries in the in the, in the past 100 years so i could be totally mistaken about this but i'm not mistaken about the fact that many of these uh, archival boxes had never been opened because you you can you can tell if you've ever done this kind of work you can tell that's some there's something poignant about that imagine oh leaving your papers oh. behind thinking like oh, i'm going to leave these behind for future scholars and then it takes 100 years for anybody to crack into it <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know if scholars or it's just it's just how um yeah it's just how relegated they have been and unworthy it seems of anyone in anyone's interest uh it, it was yeah poignant is i guess the right word it was it was very it was it was very sad it really was well uh i want to be respectful of your time but i don't want to uh leave you without talking a bit about your biography, which I find interesting. Uh, touched on it maybe a little bit at the top. You were born in Buenos Aires, and then you you let like your father was a like as I read about was a leftist filmmaker, and you had to kind of flee due to political unrest when you were very young. Yes. Okay, and then you wound up in Sweden. That's right. Yeah, I spent my sort of my early childhood or, you know, I, I think I moved, we moved back when I was about 11 or so. Okay. Yeah. And, and then, then toward, yes. We'll ahead. just continue because I just, it's just interesting to me because you lived in a lot of different places. Oh, so, so yeah, so we moved back with, with the return of democracy. We went, we went back to Argentina. My parents decided they wanted to go back and uh, I didn't feel fully at home, but I, I did my undergrad there. But um, I knew I knew I wanted to leave, and specifically, I knew I wanted to be in an English-speaking country. I, I fell in love with the English language, so I finished my degree as quickly as I possibly could, and then applied for a scholarship and got a grant from the British Council. And I moved to London for a couple of years, and then I came to to NYU immediately after that and i've been living here in new york city for gosh uh i think 23 years now always in brooklyn different parts of brooklyn but always a brooklyn address and you got yeah. your phd at new at nyu i did yeah what, what did you get your phd in i'm curious well i i started out in the spanish department because you know it's it seemed like the 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 easiest way to get in yeah and but then i ended up i ended up with a with like a comparative literature uh um project that was about different forms of isolation in 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 modern literature not only in spanish it was heavy on uh, on uh, english and american literature and uh, i was i was very i was very into literary theory and philosophy like I, I i picked nyu because jacques jacques derrida was 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 teaching there so i thought oh it would be cool to take derrida's seminar and uh, and i was i was very uh did you take a seminar 
I, I did. I did. I, uh, yeah, every year when he taught it, I, I would I would I would take it. It was when I say seminar, I mean, when you hear seminar, you probably imagine like a like a like a round table and, and people with their cups of coffee. It was, you know, it, it was over 100 people in a, in a very large sort of auditorium style classroom. It wasn't an intimate thing. But, you know, you could go to his office hours and stuff. But I was I thought for a while that that was what I wanted to do something more in that in that field in in theory or philosophy or uh, you know becoming a scholar which I which I did for a while but I always wrote fiction uh, simultaneously and then a number of reasons personal institutional and and so on led me to really take the plunge and uh, and devote myself to writing it didn't go it was terrible at first. I mean, not the writing itself, but no, nobody would touch my stuff. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I didn't have connections. I didn't have anything. And uh, so it was many, many years, many years of, uh, of total and absolute rejection. So if there are, you know, aspiring writers or unpublished writers who are listening to this, you know, please know that <laughs> that's... That's that's the that's the more common narrative, sort of the first, you know, over a decade of just not nothing happening. But I kept I kept writing, of course. It's just it was it was all invisible, you know, novels and short stories. Yeah. Okay. And then and it's it's nice to hear you talk about that part of it, because the trajectory that you've been on since In the Distance published has been kind of the dream trajectory for a writer of literary fiction. And for those people listening who don't know the story, I want to give them a thumbnail. In the Distance, your debut novel was submitted without an agent to Coffee House Press. They picked it up off the slush pile, accepted it for publication. It went on to be nominated for the Penn Faulkner, I believe, and the Pulitzer Prize. Is that right? Yes. It won, yes, it won, some, other, won some other awards. So this is like the... This is like the stuff of uh, of movies, right? For a book to get picked up off the slush pile and to have that kind of critical reception and publication success. Um, but I think for the outside person looking in, they might hear that and be like, wow, what a lucky guy. He got picked up off the slush pile. He's the one in a million. But they don't hear about the 10 years that you spent failing and continuing to try over and over again to get to the point where that happened. And and not being picked up from the slush pile, like and and the and the you know stack of rejection letters and emails that I stopped collecting really because it it just got ridiculous. It was it was too much and too depressing. And so no, it 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 wasn't. It was immensely lucky. I won't take that away. Like that is obviously a a factor. The right person, the right time, the right mood, the right even like political context for something to click. There's so many things that have to align that don't depend on anyone because they're collective things. They're not under anyone's control. If there were, people would control them and, and, you know, but you can't. So there is that element, but, but I can't emphasize this enough. Like it, it writing for, for those reasons is just, the wrong reason to write the the only good reason to become a writer because it's a it's very lonely it's very um to me at least 
destabilizing like it make it's it's a world of self-doubt all the time and 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 self-questioning it's and there is no money in general in it. so the the only reason to to do it is because you love being in language uh because because that is your world your medium it, it's where you feel good it's where you it's your home uh and i i feel at home in 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 language and specific very specifically in the english language and i i enjoy being in there i enjoy sort of lexical challenges you know what is what is the right word for, for this emotion and and i enjoy the architectural dimension of putting together a plot all all of these things i i love doing and reading of course and that's why you do it and the all the other stuff i mean of course it's welcome because it allows you to do it more comfortably and with less pressure and with you know it's more fun when you're not rejected all the time sure yeah it is it is it is a lot more fun not to be rejected and also you start feeling a little crazy when when you're rejected for years and years and years because you keep at it despite the world telling you to please stop (laughs) right i I know that feeling i know that feeling where you're like am i I, you're like you do question your sanity you go am i crazy for having spent years of my life at this you know and then to have somebody uh, like say yes is such a relief that's the word that i it is a relief it is a relief it is a relief because yeah you, you you do feel slightly insane or very insane and so yeah so that's i mean that's that's that is in a in a in a nutshell the story and you know to this day sometimes i i will send stories out and they they are still rejected you know uh, this time through my agent which is much nicer but i think it's a good thing that there's still stories that are rejected because it means that hopefully maybe they they're just rejected because they suck that is most likely the reason but also it could be that they're pushing against something and and they feel hopefully weird and inadequate in in ways that i hope to keep alive as a writer like not writing the thing that is expected and and that is you know streamlined to go straight into uh to to print you know i i i hope i hope to to be rejected to some extent in the future still you know because that that means I'm, i'm trying to do something something new and that's something that i that i try to keep alive for myself. So let me ask you a question about In the Distance, your debut novel that Coffee House published and was nominated uh, for the Pulitzer. Because this was the breakthrough for you, you know, this was the book that, that got the yes. With the benefit of hindsight, was there something that you experienced in the writing of the novel that indicated to you that this one had a good chance of working, whereas maybe previous efforts didn't have a, like, or create a similar feeling to you? Was there anything distinguishing about it? Well, I, I liked it better. I, you know, I, I am, I don't, I don't put out things that I don't like. I'm not that kind of writer. And by putting out, I mean, even to a publisher or a submission or now my agent, or I don't, 
I I only submit things when when they are really done to me, and and sometimes that takes a a long time. And of course, you know, I suffer from the same thing we all do. Like I see it then on the page, you know, printed, and I discover a million small things. But still, I, by and large, I stand by the whole book or story or whatever it is. So, I I don't know. I think, I think it was better than than what I had written before. But that's something we all hope for ourselves in whatever it is that we do right i can't pinpoint or i can't you know point to anything in particular that sort of made that book uh again because then maybe i would i would try to to replicate that in the future i you know just to to make sure that i can keep paying my bills but i i don't i honestly don't know it's just i try i try to write with as much rigor and as much emotion as I can. Those those are the two things that I that I try to do, to to try to write with 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 feeling, and to, and to try to write with with enormous accuracy and linguistic sort of rigor. <laughs> These two things tend to cancel each other out, right? Emotion and this other uh, side of trying to make things really as tight as they can possibly be. So it's it's hard to keep both things uh, uh, equally intense on the page. Hmm. Well, I'm imagining you're going to say something to that effect when I ask you my next question, which is a question about follow-up. Like having such a great success with this debut that sort of defied the odds and you know made such a splash and then to have trust come out on a major press and this is your follow-up to in the distance and i you know there are expectations that are either real or imagined around your sophomore effort and i just want to hear you talk about managing especially the emotional content of that trying to keep your focus and not let that get get to you because i could imagine how it would you know can you just describe what you did to kind of keep yourself on an even keel as you approached the writing of trust yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie and pretend that i or tell you that that i'm writing in in a vacuum and that i you know each new project is fresh and uh what i did previously has no bearing on 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 what i'm doing now that is simply not not true and now for instance I, i just finished trust and i'm at the stage of thinking of a new project and 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 even you know knowing that the trust is now out in the world has an effect on me i feel i i need to echo myself here and really say again that to me it's it's about rediscovering again the 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 joy of language and and i find that for instance, at this stage uh, in in reading, so I, you know, I'm catching up with books that I've always wanted to read, books that on, only pleasure. There is nothing at this point that I'm reading that that is a chore. Like if I if I don't like a book, I I I put it down and pick a new one. It has to be. I have to find that 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 joy in in language, as I said before, uh, and. And and then uh, you know once once an idea gains traction in my mind and at the moment I have I have a couple 
battling each other out and I'm, I'm letting I'm letting them do the work and whoever prevails I think will be the uh, whatever prevails would be will be what I'll what I'll do but it it'll it'll take a it'll take a little time to see which one I'm feeling more intensely but um once that has been established I I honestly love writing so much that it it it, it takes over all the other considerations it it doesn't really matter then they resurface every now and then and i wonder oh how will this do you know will will i be able to place it normal questions that i think any reasonable writer asks uh, themselves because you you want your creature sort of to fare well you don't you don't want it to get stranded uh like again i've i've had uh, my fair share of that and it doesn't feel great you know especially with a novel which is years of your life so i think the the answer to your question is always in the work it, it's always in the work there's there's something when things start clicking and again i'm speaking to all the writers who hopefully are tuning in and hopefully they will know this feeling when when you are almost i don't surf i don't do any sports at all but i i I imagine that that must be what surfing must feel like. You, you know, you finally caught the wave and you're gliding along with it and everything's in balance and you're there with the elements, you know, and and a certain velocity and you're you're part of it because you have to you have to keep yourself going and and upright and everything, but there is also a passive element, you're being carried by the wave and that is when I finally get there everything else vanishes please don't ask me where the surfing metaphor came from you are in california i'm in brooklyn i'm a i'm a, I'm a city boy I, I i don't think i've ever touched a surfboard but there you go i feel like ernan might be writing a surfing novel sometime in the future who knows this could be part of his future i do love the beach boys yeah well there you go well i have uh, so enjoyed talking with you and congratulate you on trust which is a, a big achievement there's a lot that we talked about, but there's a lot more to discover for readers. It's a very, what's, a, what's the word? Intellectually robust and beautifully rendered, like Russian nesting doll kind of novel. It's a great puzzle. And a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of it came to me as I was reading um, with the feeling of, of wonderful surprise, which I always love in fiction. So kudos to you i know i can only imagine how much work went into it and i know it's been getting a great reception so i congratulate you and i thank you for your time oh brad it's been such a pleasure and such an honor to be on uh, I've, I've been doing a bunch of these but this conversation uh, was really truly a pleasure i'm so grateful Okay, guys, there you go. That was Ernan Diaz. His new novel is called Trust. It's available now from Riverhead. You can find Ernan Diaz on the internet at ernandiaz.net. I do not believe he has any social media accounts. One more time, the novel is called Trust. It is superb. Go get your copy right away. The Other People podcast is offered freely every single episode of this show, almost 800 episodes and counting. They are all made available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. 
This show depends on your support, so if you listen regularly, if you like it, if you get something from it, I hope you will consider supporting it. To do so, just visit patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. I try to make it easy on you. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month. Or you can move up the scale. As you do so, you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a sticker, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard. I will wish you a happy birthday. Check it out. Support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to get a copy of my new novel, it's out there now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. Once again, the audiobook is voiced and uh, narrated by yours truly. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. Go get it. There are new t-shirts available, new Other People t-shirts. Did you know that? There's some new merch. If you want to check that out, go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. And you should know, too, that I redesigned the show's official website recently, otherppl.com. So if you want to check that out, go right ahead. The Other People podcast has its own official app. It's a great way to listen. Go get the Other People app wherever you get your apps. Just search for it by name, Other PPL. The Other People podcast is also available on YouTube. So if you're a YouTube person, check out the Other People YouTube channel. Search for it by name, Other PPL, and subscribe. It's free. Every single episode of this show, almost 800 and counting, is available to listen to on YouTube. All right? So, great episode today. Fun to talk with Ernan Diaz. I will be back next week with more. More conversations. Another conversation. Another episode. In public.